Let's pray together. Father God, I pray that as we, as we open up your, your book, your word, sharp, active, powerful, discerning, and cutting, penetrating, Father, you'd ready us for it. This is not any other book. This is not like any other letter or literature or any other words strung together on a page. Father, speak to us, I pray. Father, speak to us in those broad, universal terms that we all need to hear and know. And speak to us in those personal, encouraging, or challenging, or motivating, or, or convicting words that we need to hear and do specifically. Lord, I pray, perhaps not knowing the name of every person that's sitting in this room, nor the situations of all the people in this room. But I do pray that all the ones that are here listening today, that, that call you Father, that trust Jesus as their Savior, who faithfully follow that King, will do so till the day they die, or till the day you return for us, whichever should come first. Father, I do pray for faithfulness among us, perseverance all the way to the end, and not just personally, but that we make it together. And that when we finish, we have finished well. We can say we fought the good fight. Uh, we finished the race. We have kept the faith. And we can know with confidence, too, that there is a crown laid up for us. And not only us, but all those who love your appearing. So, Father, I pray you would use the words today. You use your word today. Lord, to further... That end, that result. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. First Timothy chapter 1, verse 18. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. And those are the key phrases. Wage a good warfare, holding faith and a, clear, and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. The theme of perseverance has been pretty heavy in my mind and, um, and kind of at the forefront of things I've been teaching over the last several weeks when when we were teaching in India, I, I told the, the pastors each of those sessions, each of those uh, pastor conferences, I really have two aims for you. One is more short-term, but one is very long-term. And, and in the short run, I just want to encourage you today. That's what I told them. I want you to leave here with a, just a renewed sense of enthusiasm for the task, um, a renewed sense of your calling and love for it, and just, just to feel refueled that you're ready to you're ready to get back out there and, and, and get after it. You're ready to hit it hard and with just encouragement. But I said, in the bigger scheme of things, what I really want for all of us is, is to endure. I'm not going to have opportunity to know each of them by name. I told them, and I won't know all your situations and challenges, but I would love to be able to know that when this is all over, when it's all said and done, and we live out this course that God has laid for us to run, that we've all finished 
that each one of us in this room have finished. And not just finished, not just crawled past that finish line, not limped across the finish line, but that we have finished well. And one of the reasons, I guess, that that's on my mind a lot is things I read. You know, I read about so many in ministry that are, that are dropping out. I still remember something given sort of as a prediction, not exactly a prophecy. On my graduation day, the first time I went through seminary, I can remember back in 1996 at, at the commencement at New Orleans Baptist Seminary, and the person addressing us said, if statistics hold true, only 5% of you in this graduating class are going to finish your careers in ministry. 95% of you will be doing something else before it's all said and done. I thought, that's just tragic. But it's not so much about just changing career, because there can be viable reasons for that. God can use us to do different things and call us a different sort of task and still be serving His purposes. I know that for sure. But I'm bigger and more concerned for those that just quit the faith, it seems. You know, for me, that's not a hypothetical subject. I know sometimes we can wax philosophical and we can debate about was that person ever truly saved and what does apostasy look like and if you're here this morning in our life group hour we shared one of the tenets of a confession of faith which we hold which says those who are truly in Christ will endure to the end but today I'm not so much about the hypothetical but the real I I see people quitting and dropping out you don't have to look very hard to see disconcerting numbers and stats church attendance is waning across the board Denominations are, are struggling. Yeah, we see some outliers. I mean, surely there are some mega, mega churches today like we hadn't seen in Christian history, literally in 2,000 years, churches gather that size. But as a whole, we're seeing literally thousands are closing every month. And certainly the pressure from the outside is all around us. Donald Gray Barnhouse spoke of what he called the, the invisible war, the invisible war against Christianity. But, you know, in our time, the war is really not so invisible anymore. I, I read with just a, just a great level of frustration, I guess, if that's the right word, angst, yesterday, and I'm reading about Tony Dungy. You know who Tony Dungy is? You know, former NFL coach, outspoken Christian, and now he gets football commentary on NBC. And Tony Dungy spoke at the March for Life and gave a, a short message, short speech. And you know, some of the things that Tony was saying are just, they were just commonly accepted things that not only that Christians embraced, but just people in general accepted not so many years ago. Nothing that he said is radical or extremist or, or, or far-right or dangerous, as he's been accused of. It's just, it's just espousing basic tenets of Christianity applied in our current culture. And for that, man, the lamb, the lamb blasting he's taken, the attacks. And you begin to realize that the culture that we live in, I know that's such a broad and nebulous term, but when I say that, I mean our media our entertainment culture, our, our news industry, our, our academic world, the elites of our culture have put a, a target squarely over Christianity. I mean, the battle is out there. But today, I don't want to talk so much about that. That's another subject for another day. How do we rightly fight the battle in our culture for the faith? Because we've got another enemy. We, we've got another fight, another struggle. And this is one that's been plaguing the church for 2,000 years. And, and I dare say, I speculate to say, that this enemy is far more dangerous and far more likely to take us down than the external enemy. It's the enemy within. Now, here's Timothy with all of his beautiful and rich beginnings. I mean, Scripture just talks about what a jewel of a guy Timothy was. You know, I mentioned to you last week or a couple of weeks ago, we were introduced to Timothy in the book of Acts as one that Paul was mentoring and bringing along with him. According to 2 Timothy 
chapter 1, verse 5, Timothy had a rich legacy of the faith, you know, multi-generational, mother and grandmother. I mean, this is an evidentially Christian family. They knew the truth. They lived it. They walked in it. They passed it down. There's a legacy here. I mean, what, a, what an aim for every Christian family in this room. What an aim for some of you to continue the legacy, for some of you to start the legacy, for some of you to begin it right now in your generation, some of you young moms and dads. You didn't come from exemplary Christian homes or families, or maybe you came from broken homes and families like mine, but you can be a legacy starter, and Lord willing, you can cast a wide and long shadow, not only over your own children, but their children and beyond. According to 2 Timothy 1.6, Timothy had received a gift from God for ministry, a gift that he was told to fan and to flame this, this gift of God. God has uniquely given you something for the good of his people and for his glory. And he'd received the ordination of Paul. Paul had laid hands on him. Later on in this book, we're in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 4, we see that his ministry that God had given him through this gift was affirmed by a prophetic word. God gave someone in the church a prophetic word over Timothy to affirm what he called him to do and serve. And he was endorsed by the whole church. The whole church recognized it. I mean, this is this is a classic case study of a man of God in the first century. I mean, what a model to follow, Timothy. And according to Acts 16 too, just this, just this statement, he was well spoken of by the brothers. I mean, his family legacy, his personal faith, his spiritual giftedness, his recognition by those in leadership, his honoring by the apostle Paul, his, his reputation, I mean, it's all stellar. And then Paul gives him this charge. And notice that's the word, this charge I entrust to you. Now, I, I'm not, so I have to be careful that I don't use illustrations that would make me seem like a nitwit, but I know some of you, a number of you in this room have military experience. Raise your hand if you've got some military experience. Some of you still are having it. You're still having a military experience. This is military language. When he says, I charge you with this, this is not suggestion. These are not five tips to help your Christian living. These aren't six ways to build a large church. Th these aren't 10 methods to counteract your godless culture in Ephesus. This is like a commander, one in authority, speaking to one under and saying, this is your assignment. This is your charge. This is an order. But he says it with love, with affection, kind of almost contrasting metaphors. This charge I give you like a commander to my child. It's not impersonal. I love you and I care for you, and I want to see you succeed, and I want to see that legacy continue. He gives them this charge, and what's the charge? To fight. To fight. Now, I don't want to belabor the word today, but at least I want you to recognize and understand that you and I as Christians, even if you've never personally felt any experience of it, even if the idea seems remote from your own experience, you and I as Christians are in a fight. You're in a fight. And it's not just this generation. Every Christian in every generation has been in the same fight. And we've seen so many examples in Scripture that it doesn't take very long for people to turn from the faith. We see examples in the Old Testament. A generation rises up that doesn't know Moses. How in the world is that possible? How in one generation do you forget? Or who knew not Joseph? How, how is that possible? How is it possible in such short order we see righteous kingdoms supplanted by unrighteous ones. How long does it take for people to turn from the faith in every single generation? 
But again, my point today, my intent today is not to address all the outside factors. The culture against us or the media against us or the world against us. Those things are very, very real. I I want to talk about the fight within. And when I say within, I'm not talking about the fight just within you. I'm talking about the fight within the church. Because that's the context of 1 Timothy. He's writing to Timothy, a pastor elder of a local congregation. He's talking about waging this fight. He's calling him to fight. Fight the good fight. What's this good fight about? It's about a word, or at least partially about a word, that a lot of people don't hold in high esteem. I'm afraid a lot of people don't think is so critically important anymore. And that's called theology, the study of God, or doctrine, the truths about God that we hold. It's a fight for sound teaching. This fight is critical to the church and has been in every generation. Again, if you're with us in our life group time, I gave a brief introduction of sort of fundamental Christian confessions and creeds throughout the generations. And why were those necessary? And why was the Bible itself just not sufficient to guide people's beliefs and behaviors? Because over time, people would deviate. Over time, people would get into vain arguments and ridiculous discussions and begin to promote crazy ideas and notions, and they would win people over to them. And so periodically, the church had to say, no, let's convene and let's decide this is what we believe the Scriptures teach. This is what we hold to be true. This is our our challenge. And the Christian church, since the first century, has never been able to simply rest in the faith. Remember what Jude said, verse 3? We have to contend for this faith once and for all delivered to us. Another translation says entrusted to us. The idea of entrusting or delivering is if you don't contend for it, You could be the generation that fumbles it, that loses it. Again, this begins in the Old Testament. We're studying this right now on Wednesday nights, by the way. And yes, this is a commercial. Join us on Wednesday nights. We're in Exodus. Before long, Moses, who'd been in the presence of God himself, along with other elders and witnesses, seeing something of the glory of God, it won't be very long from this great experience of seeing God's glory delivering to the people his law written on stone tablets before the people are saying, no, our God is this. It's this golden calf. Let's worship him. And they begin to deny from the very beginning. By the time of Elijah, true believers are outnumbered exponentially in the kingdom. Elijah, standing as a solitary prophet, faces 450 prophets of Baal. Now, you and I may or may not face those same odds, but this is not inconsistent with Scripture. The warfare resumed in the New Testament. What about Jesus? Jesus was constantly contesting the Pharisees. They had the book. They had the law. They consistently misapplied it, mistranslated it, misappropriated it. And he has to continue to deal with those. And now the history of the church, again, one doctrinal confrontation or another. We have to know what the truth is. And I I would say in our generation today, we're probably weaker theologically, doctrinally, than in any generation of the church in 2,000 years. We don't think deeply. We don't think doctrinally. We don't meditate on the deep things typically. We don't delve deeply. We become much more the experiential generation. Our main consideration, it seems, with what we listen to or what we read is not, is this true? Is this God-glorifying? Is this awesome or amazing? Is, Is this beneficial to me? How does this make me feel? Is this helpful to me today? And those are so superficial in our approaches. So here's the issue for him. He says, I want you to fight. And this is a fight to finish well. A fight to finish well. 
And that's premise number one. If you've been tracking, writing any notes, the Christian life is a fight. It's a fight against an external enemy called the world. It's a fight against an unseen enemy called the devil. It's a fight against an internal enemy called sin. Sometimes it's a fight among friends and brothers within the church. It's, it's a real fight. Premise number two. Paul makes it clear to Timothy that there is such a thing as a good fight, which means that not every fight is a good fight. He told Timothy, fight the good fight. Not every fight is a worthwhile fight or a good fight. I don't want you to be someone who is just prone to conflict. In fact, we know from the scriptures that, that Paul wrote, the man of God must not be quarrelsome. He's not telling Timothy, I just want you to be a scrapper. I mean, I want you to go after everything and everybody. No, not every fight is a good fight. In fact, we, we see again and again, there are some things we shouldn't fight about. You remember verse 4? Timothy was told, nor to devote themselves to myths, Endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than stewardship from God that is by faith. There are so many things that we can discuss and debate and argue about that are not worth our time. And I love the two terms that Scripture uses here. I think they form a great framework for us to consider when we're discussing the Bible, when we're discussing doctrine, when we're discussing theology. Is this a speculation? Is this a speculation? Just an idea or thought. It's fine for you to have speculations sometimes. Speculations can be fun to kick around. You know, if you've got a friend or something that can handle your bizarre speculations, and they can say, hey, that's nutty, but hey, whatever. But we don't fight about speculations. There's a difference between speculating about things that have no biblical root, no biblical proofs, no biblical context, and stewardship. Stewardship is the right handling of revelation that we've been given. There's a huge difference here. You and I are not rightly handling the revelation that God has given us. We're not stewarding it well. We're not using it for its right purposes, understanding it, studying it, applying it, doing it, if we're just speculating on things. Well, this might mean this. This could be this. And what about this? Again, there's a huge difference. We steward things that we hold true, that are certain, that are necessary, and use them well. So in answering the call to ministry, Timothy was ordered, fight the good fight waged a good warfare. So what's a good fight? Well, throughout this epistle, Timothy's warned about certain things that are not good fights. In verse 4, stay away from issues that provoke, promote controversy. Not everything is a critical issue. You may have strong opinions about them. I don't speak often on, on eschatology, for instance, though we will at certain times. We did a long series through the book of Revelation on Wednesday night. At some point in, in the Lord's determination, I'll do another series on are we living in those last days and what does that look like? But I'm careful not to just speculate. I want to be scriptural with those things. Stay away from those things which promote controversy. As an elder in the church, again, I mentioned he's told you must not be quarrelsome. That's chapter 3, verse 3, and 2 Timothy 2.23. And then in chapter 6 of this same letter, he says, anyone who has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about many words is a false teacher. Do you know some people like that? They just love to talk about the minutia and the nuances and argue about things that just don't matter. I haven't had many people argue with me over the years about things that don't matter. But I do find a lot of questions, and I find myself um, answering at least in my mind before I try to proffer an answer to someone who's asking me, does this really even, even matter? Does this really even matter? 
You know, let's not miss the big picture for things that are just so, so insignificant that it doesn't, doesn't really matter. You see, a lot of things that Christians fight about are, are bad fights. Would you agree? Christians are guilty of fighting bad fights with one another. We're guilty of having arguments that aren't worth arguing. And so as God's people, as God's sheep, we end up pretty battered and busted up because we've chosen the wrong place to stand our ground or we've chosen the wrong issue to contest. How do you know the difference between a good fight and a bad fight? Here's some things to think about. This discussion that you're having, will this matter a year from now? If it doesn't matter a year from now, it doesn't matter now. Will it matter down the road a little bit? Another question you can ask is this, and for those of you who love a good argument or a good debate, you can be guilty of this for sure. Am I enjoying this argument? You know, a little bit in a perverse way. I mean, I love getting over on someone. I, I love proving my point. I love winning. I, I, I love conquering them. You may be fighting for the wrong reasons, for the wrong motivation. That may be for the glorification of yourself and not for the protection of the truth. There's a difference in contending for the faith and contending for pride. Are you fighting for yourself or are you fighting for others? You know, are you defending someone else's spiritual interest or are you defending the glory of God? Are you just protecting your own? This is what I think. This is what I feel. And how dare you contest me? When you argue, do you find yourself having to justify why you are arguing or defending yourself? You know, I think things that are worth fighting about or arguing don't require an explanation. It's clear why I'm fighting about this. Because this is what the scriptures say. So if one of us were to give a speech, for instance, like Tony Dungy did, about the sacredness of life, that's worth fighting for. Because I'm defending something that defends the honor of God and the teachings of his word and the, and the value of humanity. Those are different things. I don't need to defend why I'm arguing about that. It's self-evident. Maybe a more spiritualized way of asking this would be this. Would Jesus fight about this? Certain things that Jesus did raise argument over. Certain things he was contentious over. Certain things he did find worth fighting about. Would this be one of them? Would Paul? Paul was no one's coward. Paul backed down from no one. Paul was fearless in his communication. Would he find this worth talking about? Would the early church? Would this be something the early church would say, no, here we need to take a stand. This is something Christianity has done for a long time. Understanding the differences. So, premise one. We are in a fight. Obviously against the world, obviously against Satan, our spiritual enemy, obviously against sin. But Paul is addressing Timothy, those internal things in the church, those sorts of teachings and those kinds of teachers that would derail people from their faith. So the question then becomes this, how do we fight? How do we fight? And Paul gives Timothy, and scriptures give us, Holy Spirit gives us through these scriptures, these two means of fighting. And I want to try to explain them briefly to you this morning. The first one is this. He says, hold on to the faith. Hold on to the faith. Now, this is a critical point, so don't miss this. The Bible doesn't say, hold on to your faith. It says, hold on to the faith. This is an objective statement. Objectively, you want to guard yourself to the end? You, you want to finish well? You want to cross that line to the words of well done, good and faithful servant? Then you've got to have a faith that is objective, objectively true. Not subjectively true for you or to you. 
your, not your version, not your opinion, not what you feel, not what you imagine, but that which is objectively true. That's the message Paul is giving Timothy. He says, you know, creeping into the church, even then in the first century, even under the leadership of the Apostle Paul, will be false teachers. I mean, think about that just for a moment. It's easy to see that after 2,000 years, we could be on a long, slow, heretical trajectory. That slowly over time, we begin to lose sight of things that were once held sacred, that were once a given, once commonly understood by everyone. And slowly over time, we begin to move and deviate. Well, that's one thing to understand. But imagine, we're still in the first century. Scripture is still being formulated and, and dispersed. And the apostles are alive, and yet there's already false teachers in place. What does that tell us anytime? any place, under any leadership, this is possible that these teachers could emerge. So we hold on to an objective faith, the faith, the faith, the faith, once and for all passed down. And so there are critical elements to this faith. Who is Jesus, co-equal with the Father and the Spirit? Three parts of the Godhead, equal in unity, different in substances. What did Jesus do for us? He was born of a virgin, supernaturally, he lived sinlessly, keeping every part of the law for our sake. He died sacrificially, not just as a victim of his times. Jesus was not crucified because he cared for the poor or the downtrodden or the disenfranchised. He was not crucified for the sermons that he gave. He was crucified for the purpose which God sent him. He was crucified for our sins, and yet he was raised from the dead physically, visibly, we have seen him as a critical testimony of the confession of the early, early church and that he's coming again. These things are all critical to us. The new heavens and the new earth where we will enjoy God forever, eternal judgment of the, of the condemned, the reality of a new heaven and new earth where, where God joins us for all eternity and conscious eternal torment, a place called hell for all those who reject him, don't believe in him, don't know his name. These are all critical elements of our faith. We hold on to this objective faith that God's word is true, who it reveals is true, the way of salvation is true. And so we hold on to these and we don't waver. We don't let go of these things. That's objective faith. He says, so hold on to this. Clutch these things. And if you don't know them, study them. And the more you study them, the more real they become to you. And the more you understand them, the more they create something in us. Theology, right understanding of God, as J.I. Packer says, leads to doxology, the worship of God. And I see and I understand how great is my salvation, how generous is God, how amazing is His grace, how weighty is His glory. All of these things, these critical doctrines, when they begin to land on us and settle heavily on us and we begin to think deeply about these things, what happens? God is elevated in us and our worship is elevated and our faith is deepened and it makes us makes us more and more unshakable. That's objective faith. But he also says, hold on to your conscience. This is subjective. Our consciences. This is, this is subjective. This is why Paul would tell Timothy later, Timothy, watch your life and your, your doctrine closely. Life and doctrine. What I, what I claim I believe, these things that can be for me if I'm not careful, just cold intellectual ideas or concepts, and how I actually live as one who belongs to Christ, who's under the authority of Christ, who has the controlling spirit of Christ. How I live, this is, this is subjective, this is conscience. The battle, the fight, is not simply a matter of, of faith. It's a matter of practice. So when how you're living 
doesn't match what you're professing to believe. What is Paul saying as a result of that? Well, I can tell you what's going to happen. When I say I believe one thing, and I could pass a pop quiz on the faith, but I live in a way that denies these eternal truths, I I can tell you what's going to happen. In almost 30 years of pastoral ministry, in almost 30 years, almost every single person that I know personally, so I'm not making a statement about everybody everywhere. This is anecdotal to 30 years of my ministry. Almost every person that I know personally who's either fallen away from the church, just became indifferent to spiritual things, maybe loosely still claiming to be Christian, or maybe still claiming to be Christian, but no interest in spiritual things, or worse yet, has walked away from the faith entirely. Says, I no longer believe that. That's not who I am anymore. Almost every single one, and I use almost every single one because I can't think of an example contrary to that yet. Maybe one or two would claim otherwise. But almost every single one of them has walked away because of moral compromise, not because of intellectual concern, not because they found something they just couldn't get their minds around anymore. It's because their lives no longer matched what they said they believed and something had to give. And listen, I know that makes some people frustrated or angry to hear that about yourself or about somebody else, but I will believe that till the day I die. I've watched it over and over. I've watched that same cycle repeated over and over, and I've seen people leave the church under some pretense of offense. Somebody offended them. Someone did something that hurt them or they didn't like. Or I've watched them walk under a pretense of, of disagreement over doctrine or theology, usually some minor point or some misunderstanding or some just outright deception, something they just, that, that they're lying about. And they'll cloak their departure on that but when you spend enough time with them or you, or you find out the truth, no, no, they walked away because something is happening in their own personal, moral, spiritual life. The unfaithful man to his spouse doesn't make a great Sunday school teacher anymore. And all of a sudden he has a hard time believing the exclusivity of Christ. And his idea of grace and law gets all skewed up now because he's trying to figure out a way to justify himself. Uh, that, that person that's addicted to pornography will soon find they have no appetite for Scripture, much less the appetite for a bunch of Christians standing around singing songs about uh, be thou my vision, because their vision is somewhere else. And again and again and again, for things lesser or greater, it's always that. Lifestyle pulls people away. And I'll stand on that statement till, till the day I die. I've seen it over and over and over. And so that's what he's talking about conscience. When you yourself, you, not any of us, not what we've seen, not what we recognize or noticed about you, but when you yourself, because conscience is subjective, it's you on the inside, you know you don't really live this stuff. You don't practice this stuff. You're fine studying it. You can learn about it, and you can nod your head in agreement to it, but you don't do it. You don't live it. What's the result of that? The terminology that Paul used with Timothy is this. That's a shipwreck waiting to happen. That's a shipwreck. If your faith is a boat that's sailing, it's about to crash. It's going to crash on some rock. Now, maybe, again, maybe for some small few, and I leave that door open because I'm not interested in an endless debate or argument. I leave open the possibility that for some, you're actually dealing with someone who's having a genuine, intellectual, philosophical, or theological crisis. If they belong to Christ, God will deliver them through that. God will pull them through that. But for so many others, it's just simply they're abandoning at the conscience level. I'm holding these things to be true, but I'm living this way. You and I cannot live indefinitely in internal conflict between what we say we believe and what we do. Eventually, we're going to do what we believe or we're going to believe what we do. And more often than not, I find people believing 
ultimately what they do. Their beliefs begin to match the behaviors. And that's what he's talking about. And the result of letting go of either of these, I no longer believe these fundamental truths. If I no longer believe that there is but one means to the Father, Jesus Christ, that's going to change some things about me. If I no longer believe in the holiness of God and his judgment for sin, that's going to change some things about me. If I have a skewed version of God's word on grace that basically provides me a license to do whatever I want to do and you should accept it, that's going to change some things about me. You can believe that. Wrong doctrines are at the root of wrong behaviors. And at the same time, if my behaviors began to stray from what I know to be true and I'm, I'm affecting my own conscience again and again, you get the point. I'm going to change my doctrines to match again and again. Here's what Paul wrote to Timothy. He said, the aim of our charge is a love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience, sincere faith. That's what he said in verse 5. Do you remember that? Just the verses you know? A pure heart and a good conscience and sincere faith. He says in verse 6, certain persons by swerving from these have wandered away. They swerve from what? Pure heart, good conscience, that's one thing, or a sincere faith. One of those two things was given away. They didn't believe the right things anymore, or they weren't living the right things anymore, and that made them swerve. Swerving from one of those things, they wandered away. Some evidence is wandering away. Vain discussion. Now they're talking about things that don't matter, or they're saying things that are frankly wrong. Desiring to be teachers of the law, and catch this. This, by the way, is a description of 90% of, no, let me back up, that's hateful, 85% of television ministries. This describes so much of it without understanding what they're saying or the things which they make confident assertions. That's not what the Bible says. That's not what the church has always believed. That's not what the church has always stood. They have wandered away. How do they do that? They either gave up the truth, some fundamental aspects of the truth, or something about their life no longer matches it. And when that happens, that swerving, he calls that shipwreck. Now, we're told to fight that with love. With love. How do those two things get together? Because you might be saying what you're saying sounds angry or judgmental or harsh. You know, people, false teachers and swerving away and immoral living cause them to walk away from the faith. It's not loving to be tolerant of bad teaching. It's, it's not loving to accept anything that someone says is true about God. That's not loving. It's not loving to not care if your brother or sister in the church is wandering into error. And you don't do anything about it. You don't correct that. You don't present the truth. You don't contend for the faith. The least loving thing you could do is say, hmm, that's interesting. Oh, well, I guess that might be true for you, but that's not true for me. The least loving thing we can do is not care about what each other believes. That's one of the reasons we gather for worship. That's one of the reasons we hold to a confession and to a covenant. Because we care about each other and what we believe. It's not loving to watch a fellow brother or sister wander into sin and not care. Not say anything about it. Not try to help them or encourage them or, or correct them, not challenge them. The result is shipwreck. Two examples in this text, real quickly. Hymenaeus. We know something of Hymenaeus because he's referenced again in Paul's writings to Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 16 through 19. Again, look for the similar themes. It sounds like a repeat. Avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. Irreverent Bible. You're just talking about stuff that doesn't even matter. Or irreverent. You're contrary to what God is. You're diminishing something of the weightiness of God. Their talk will spread like gangrene. Isn't that interesting? Paul wrote that to Timothy 2,000 years ago. False teaching, irreverent teaching, nonsensical teaching, worthless teaching spreads like gangrene. Do we not see that to be true? 
I mean, some of the largest ministries that we see in the world are marked by egregious false teaching. And the Bible says that would be so. And yet in our American way of thinking sometimes, we think everything that's big is better. Everything that's good must be great. And if that many people must endorse it, it must be right. And the Bible says the, the exact opposite. That in the last days, people are going to gather for themselves teachers who say exactly what they want to hear, what their itching ears want to hear. People want to hear people who scratch them where they itch. He says it's going to spread like gangrene. Among these are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have, catch the word, swerved from the truth, just like he said in the first chapter of chapter one, I mean of, of book one, saying that the resurrection has already happened. What was their doctrinal error? Where had they swerved from the faith? The resurrection has already happened. What resurrection? The resurrection of the saints from the dead. It's already happened. It's done. It's over. There's no future tense. There's no future resurrection from the dead to those who are in Christ. There is no future resurrection to life for those who are alive when Christ comes. This doesn't exist. This is a clear departure from historical Christian faith. He says they're upsetting the faith of some, but God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. Catch this, verse 19. The Lord knows those who are his, right? That's the permanence of our salvation. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. The implication here is a combination of bad teaching and bad living. They're teaching the resurrection has already happened. Depart from iniquity. Not just iniquity of the false teaching. The term iniquity refers to sinful behavior. There's a connection here. And then you have Alexander. Now this one we're a little less sure historically. I feel rather strongly that 2 Timothy 4 is referencing this person. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself for he strongly opposed our message. So here's someone who deviated doctrinally and they were shipwrecked. Again, let me remind you, and I concur with John Piper who said, most shipwrecks of faith are not at the root intellectual. Not at the root intellectual. I mean, consider some of these examples from Scripture just for a moment. I'm going to hit these just very quickly. Jesus gave a parable of the soils. Remember the parable of the soils, four different soils? In the end, there's only one soil that is clearly, reliably, inarguably converted, Christian. That fourth soil. Those who take in the scriptures, the roots grow deep, they reproduce. But there's a third sort of soil. Do you remember the third soil? As for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they're choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. What was their downfall? Cares riches, pleasures of life. That's what Jesus said. Some are going to wither and die because they love this world too much. They love its stuff too much. Paul wrote about this in another place besides just 1 Timothy. In Philemon 124, he writes to someone named Demas. You remember Demas? Demas was a fellow servant, a fellow worker. He served alongside Luke with Paul. Demas must have looked enough like a Christian to pass muster. 2 Timothy 4.10 Paul writes, Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Notice again the reason. What do you say? Why is shipwreck? Why was Demas shipwrecked in the faith? He loved this world. He loved this stuff, this present age too much. Peter wrote about it too, 2 Peter 2.20. If after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. Wait, are these people 
appearing to be Christian, maybe laying claim to being Christian, but then they fall away utterly? What happened to them? Why were they shipwrecked in their faith? They were entangled again. What's the word? Defilement. The defilement of the world. The temptations of the culture and the times and the people around them appealed to them. And they bought in. As they began to live like the culture, live like the people, live like they saw fit, they strayed from the faith. And here's one that we looked at several months ago in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12. Take care, brothers. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. What's the remedy? He says, brothers, who he's, the means by which God preserves. We said God preserves those to the end, those are his. What's, that's the end. What's the means to the end? Part of the means is warning us. So this is aimed at brothers. Brothers, take heed that you don't fall away from the living God. How do we do that? How do we do that as brothers, sisters together? Exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Whose responsibility is it that none of us fall away into unbelief or into the defilement of the world? Well, you wouldn't be wrong to say, what's well, your responsibility? Absolutely, it is my responsibility, and it's yours. But it's also our responsibility. We do this together. For we have come to share in Christ, he says. Did you catch that? Don't fall away. Exhort one another that none of you be hardened, for we have come to share in Christ if we indeed hold our original confidence firm to the end. So what's the danger? The deceitfulness of sin that would capture any of us. What's the remedy? What we do together. And what's striking in all of these, in every single one of these cases, what caused people to shipwreck their faith? It really wasn't the intellectual side. It was the spiritual, again and again. And look what happens here in this text that I just read earlier. Whatever these men had done, again, look, you know, look back at the very beginning of the text. Whatever it is that they had done, whatever their error was that caused them to shipwreck, he used the example Hymenaeus and Alexander, how did they respond? It says they handed them over to Satan. The language of handing them over to Satan is the language of church discipline that we see in 1 Corinthians. The language of handing them over to Satan is this corporate act of saying they no longer live as those for whom a confession of faith or a profession of faith seems valid. They don't live as believers. They're rejecting the instruction of the church. They're rejecting the leadership of the church. They're rejecting the clear teachings of Scripture. They're rejecting the, confession, uh, the conviction of the Holy Spirit. They don't live in any way that marks them as Christians. So what do we do? We turn them over to the king and kingdom of this world. And perhaps through that, perhaps through that judgment, perhaps through that suffering, perhaps through that separation, they will instead turn and return to Christ. So the idea here of judgment says they did something serious enough for the whole church to respond to it. Again, 1 Corinthians 5, 5, these need to be understood in the same way. They've been put out. They did something serious enough to be put out, which brings me to premise number three. Simply put, loving each other well means that we fight to finish well together. The theme of this message is perseverance in a biblically shaped church. That's not just about you making it to the end. It's not just about your personal, well done, good and faithful servant. This is about our collective finish to the end. Remember the entire context of 1 Timothy is the local church. Instructions to a leader in a local church 
How should we live rightly? Go to chapter 3, verses 14 and following, and you'll see this very clearly. How one ought to live in the household of faith, the family of God. We finish well together. We do that by teaching the word to each other and our children. We do that by encouraging each other in the truth. We do that by stimulating each other, and we call that discipleship or disciple-making, to dig down deep into the word, understand not just what you believe but why we believe it, and what that means for us and how we live. We hold each other accountable to living in a way that honors Christ. We value our personal testimonies as representatives of Christ. We value our collective testimonies as a corporate representative of Christ. And so when there's false teaching, it doesn't last here. Because it's not just one person or a group of people. It's not one elder or a group of elders or deacons or leaders. It's a self-healing church because we're so deeply rooted in the truth that we quickly recognize error. And we don't stand for it. And when, when sin happens to us, we love one another well enough that we don't stay silent. We don't remain disengaged. We, we actually care. We, we actually care if someone's struggling or falling away. And we've, we've allowed ourselves to be close enough with people in accountable sort of relationships that, Lord willing, before the fall is ultimate and final or spiritually fatal, we're already beginning to detect these signs in each other. And we're encouraging each other and we're helping each other towards faithfulness. This is what a biblically shaped church does. It loves one another enough to protect it from doctrinal error. and loves one another to protect itself enough from errors of sin and conscience. So a simple summary of everything that I've said is this. The fight for perseverance. When I say perseverance, I mean finishing well, keeping the faith. It's objective. You don't finish well without the truth. It's the truth that guides us. It's the truth that we hold on to. It's objective, objective truth. Not your faith, my faith, the faith. The faith. The fight for perseverance is also subjective. It's a fight for a good conscience and a pure heart. It's a constant daily fight of honoring God with my life. Not being content that I know the right answers to the, to the right questions but that I'm living in a way that gives evidence to a transformed life. It's subjective. I'm fighting the good fight every day. I was having this conversation the other day with someone, and it's from a book, and I discussed this book with all of you several months ago, maybe a year or two ago, Rewiring Your Heart, a book called Rewiring Your Heart. And I love one of the statements in the book, and it's just so simple and so straightforward, just our daily life. When you and I give in to the temptations of our heart's desires and we sin, with every sin, we're choosing that which kills us. Kills us spiritually, intellectually, emotionally, psychologically, physically. To choose sin is to choose death. But every time we fight, and every time we, every time we ask God to change the desires of our heart, and he shapes the desires of our heart with his word and through so many other means as we worship together, every time we fight temptation and we win, we're choosing life. We're choosing obedience is the choice of life. Sin is the choice of death every time. It's, it's, that, it's that concrete and that simple. That's subjective. I'm fighting for spiritual life, my spiritual life, and I want to fight for yours. That's, that's subjective. And the fight for perseverance is also collective. It's collective. There's a reason for the church that goes beyond our simple common understandings. You know, if church was just about content delivery, which some people today think that it is, you do know this is probably not the best way. I mean, it could be a little inconvenient. 
I mean, if, we, if this was just about content delivery, we'd just do this on our own timetables whenever we could, and we would do it online. Just watch the message. And frankly, if it was about content delivery, I would do a lot better job being a curator than a communicator. I would just say, guys, here are 20 people worth listening to, and here's 20 people to avoid, and here are their websites. Have at it. But our faith is not just about content. You know, if it was just about common fellowship, getting together with people that we like and people who are like us, there are probably other ways we could do that too. I mean, some, some Sundays were pretty divided, you know, on preferences. So what do you mean? Well, like, you know, Sunday after Iron Bowl is pretty divisive, right? We're different. I mean, if I just wanted to get around with people I liked, it wouldn't be some of you. No offense. No, we're, we're together because we've been made together in Christ. We've been part of a new fellowship. And because spiritually speaking, the plan and work of God among us requires us. Again, I said this in our life this morning, so for those of you who are here, this is repetitive. The church is not incidental. It's not auxiliary. It's not optional to our Christian life and development. It's essential. It's what God has done together. So we persevere. We persevere with objective truth. We persevere with subjective obedience keeping our consciences clear, pure faith, and we persevere collectively because we care enough to love one another to perseverance. And I pray that will mark us. Let's pray. Father, may we all be a people here who persevere to the end. I, Father, I can think of no, no greater prayer that I could pray for all my brothers and sisters in, in this room, but that none fall away, that none go after another gospel, none reject the true gospel, None deny the crucial, non-negotiable elements of our faith. I pray that every single one would hang on, hold fast to the truth, the once-for-all truth. Father, may we as a church do a great job of teaching it, of reminding of it, reiterating it, clearly communicating it, revisiting it, stating it, standing on it. And Father, I also pray that everyone here would hold fast to a clear conscience. We cannot live indefinitely in internal conflict between what we say we believe and who we say you are to us and what we say we are to you as your sons and daughters and servants of the Most High King in a way that's contrary to that. We cannot live in constant conflict with our own conscience with the Holy Spirit in us who bears witness. We cannot and expect to stand. And so, Father, I pray that we would love each other well to the end. We will love each other through difficulty and hardship. We will love each other through uh, con confusion and, and, and teaching. And we will love each other through sin and temptation and even failure and, and restore one another, bring one another back. Father, I pray we would be a true church. And I pray, again, that all the people that are part of this family of faith, this Calvary family, this local church, this visible church, Lord, I pray as broadly as I can that every single one would finish well. For your glory and, of course, Father, for our everlasting good, that's my prayer. And I ask this in Jesus' name, amen.